0: find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us what would you like the power to do mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices message and data rates may apply bank of america and member FDIC. hey
1: there it's the planet football podcast grant wall here with luis miguel Chigurai. how are you my friend hey
0: buddy how's it going
1: I'm doing okay. Uh, We're actually not in the same place this time, but that's okay. And we're changing things up a little bit this week. We will still have an interview as part of this podcast. Uh, It's going to be with uh, Tarek Panja of the New York Times. Really good interview about all the stuff happening with Man City and their stunning ban by UEFA. But first, we wanted to start with some discussion of the midweek Champions League games and... They delivered again
0: my friend especially Tuesday but to some extent on Wednesday as well. Absolutely. I mean it was a good start. I mean it gave us some interesting results. Obviously we did not expect um, you know we we thought that the Dortmund PSG game was going to be a goal fest. It wasn't the case. I think that's probably for a positive note taking in mind that defensively they looked a little bit sharper. Um, I'm sure we're going to go through every game but it was it was a good it was a good start I thought. Yeah, let's start at the top. Uh, I'm
1: going to go with what I think are sort of the the biggest headlines over these four games over two days. Let's start with Dortmund 2, PSG 1. As you mentioned, uh, we were expecting a ton of goals because neither one of these teams has played a lot of defense. And that wasn't the case. 0-0 at halftime. Uh, Second half got really interesting. Erling Haaland cannot stop scoring. Two more goals, both goals for Dortmund in this game. Uh, And PSG finds itself down a goal um, heading back to Paris. And if you're Dortmund, I have to think even though you gave up the away goal here to get the advantage after
0: PSG had equalized has to feel pretty good. Absolutely. I think coming with a victory is really the most important thing. Obviously, it's not a be-all, end-all. I mean, you know, 2-1 is really nothing, right, when it comes to a a two-legger, especially now that Dortmund has to play uh, away from home. Uh, But really was a good result, especially, you know, as you mentioned, when PSG came back to equalize. Listen, when you look at the stats overall, they're not that dissimilar. I mean, Dortmund had 12 shots to PSG's 10. The possession was a little bit more for PSG. Pass accuracy, the the overall intent going towards the final third was pretty similar. But when you think about it, ultimately, especially in big games like this, you really are just determined and uh, you know concluded by by your individual talent and. Obviously, we have to talk about Erling Haaland. As you mentioned, just can't stop scoring. I think the man is 80% as transformer. Um, when he <laughs> shoots, like he literally almost just breaks. When he, I mean, the winning goal, Giorena's assist. I'm sure we're gonna talk about it. Good, happy for him. I think becoming the youngest uh, American in the Champions League, right? Um, but yeah. to me, that goal, uh, you could hear the. the 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 ball, you know, sort of resonated itself against the net. It was amazing. And it was another tremendous performance, and it's something that we've talked about him for a long time now, how he's not just physical, he's not just big, he's not just good in the air. He knows exactly how to move. And his first goal, even though it wasn't a 25-yard screamer, it was just pure striker's instinct, and he deserves both of them, but all to play for in the second leg. I think people have this thing they assume
1: with Haaland just because he's so big that they assume he's kind of a one-dimensional player, but that is totally not the case. I love the different types of goals that he scores. I like the IQ he has for the game, knowing where to be to anticipate uh, in his runs in the box, Uh, and then just sheer power on the goal from outside the box with his left foot, Um, just... I'm running out of things to marvel at with the guy because he's also tremendously fast. There's a meme going around online showing the run that Holland made where he ends up uh, defensively having the clearing header and then runs at full speed as Dortmund does their counterattack down the field and basically just catches up with everyone and passes them puts himself in a position they didn't score but at least puts himself in a position where he could have scored at the other end which would have been one of the great runs of all time
0: yeah absolutely I'm with you my friend I mean we've talked about uh him in this category so much it's not just the fact that he's a big guy and he's physical he's so smart he has such a big smart soccer brain but let's not take anything away from you know, uh, Hazard on one side and Jaden Sancho on the other. They provide so much for him um, you know the, the reason why he's able to be so mobile inside the box and uh, inside the box and out is because his supporting uh, front line uh, you know give him that capability I mean Jada Sancho with the ball is just beautiful to watch but this is it was a good game really talented individuals on both sides and like I said I think that this if, if this is the moment for PSG is right now in their second leg at home what do you have and to me anything less than a victory, would say nothing that once again PSG has failed and Borussia Dortmund is not going to be an easy obstacle to overcome
1: yeah I mean you talked about Gio Reyna as well 17 year old American just turned 17 recently becomes the youngest American ever to play in Champions League gets an assist on the winning goal from Holland. he did get sort of a rude awakening Reyna right after he came on he was one of the guys that got worked by Kylian Mbappe on that terrific run he had uh, to set up Neymar's goal that's okay Grant
0: Join the line, right? Join the line to pe- people who have been killed by Kylian Mbappe. That's okay. That's an okay list to, to join.
1: <laughs> but like, I, I don't know if, like, is getting attention, obviously, but, like, Dortmund has this reputation for not just developing great young players but giving them opportunities that they wouldn't get elsewhere. And part of me wonders if Gio is was in the United States right now, would he be on like some MLS team that wouldn't even give him the opportunity to play first team soccer?
0: Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, it's one of the main reasons why so many younger Americans go to Europe, especially the Bundesliga, and they begin, they don't begin in the first team. They work their way up, um, some even as young as Youth Academy, and, and look what happens. And there's something to be said about development, right?
1: Yeah, um, so obviously a lot to play for still in the return leg. Same could be said for the other Tuesday game with the biggest, probably surprising result, Atletico 1, Liverpool 0. Obviously Liverpool has been the best team in Europe all season long, and here Atletico gets the early goal off a set piece. Saul ends up uh, sort of cleaning up uh, the mess that Liverpool helped create, getting the goal, and then Atletico, just a very classic Diego Simeone team, shuts up shop for the next 85 minutes and leaves with a one-goal advantage.
0: (laughs) Yep, absolutely. You said it. It's classic Cholo. It's Cholo football. It's we're going to hit you right in the face whenever it counts. And then once we get that goal, we'll we'll, we'll try and get rid of, of the most uh, important assets that you have. Listen again, we have to go back to the statistics. You look at Liverpool side; they lost one nothing. Uh, it's the first leg, but they had seventy three percent possession. They had over triple the amount of passes against Atletico. They just couldn't get the job done. And uh, but it's just one nothing, and like Jurgen Klopp said at the end of that game you know, all to play for that Anfield. Anfield is, is, is just one nothing. So this really, to me, is just nil-nil. I,
1: I really feel like... I think Atletico is going to try to give them a hard game, Will potentially succeed at giving them a hard game back at Anfield, but I, I just feel like Liverpool is going to be fine here in the end. Uh, I, I've seen them uh, come back against Barcelona, obviously, in a situation. I think Barcelona is a much better team than this Atletico team is. But... Is there any doubt that Liverpool is going to come back in the the return leg?
0: I don't know, man. Like, obviously, I think the cards favor Liverpool, uh, especially the home support is just going to go all behind them. And we know that the confidence is going to jilt. And I think that, in a way, the main thing that we have to remember is that Jurgen Klopp, aside from the fact that he's building a tremendous team with Liverpool, is that he's a really smart tactician. So he's probably Mm -hmm. going to look at the tape from the first leg and say, OK, I don't think Atletico and Diego Simon is going to bring me anything different. Um, he's going to do the same gut punch and then sit back when he can. So I think that Klopp is going to look at the shapes, he's going to look at the spaces that he can capitalize on and then take over. Like I said, one nothing is nothing. I think that Klopp's Liverpool can definitely take over here. But I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes a bigger struggle than we think.
1: Yeah, I was also a little surprised by some of the ungallant things that were said by Jurgen Klopp and Virgil van Dijk after this game where, uh, you know, Klopp said some things about, well, if you played this style, uh, you know, he was critical of of the way they were playing to get a result. He said the fans are happy because of the result, uh, implying that Liverpool doesn't play that way, and and van Dijk with some similar stuff. Do you think that
0: Atletico got into Liverpool's heads a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think, listen, if you know anything about Diego Simeone, he could give two bricks about what you think, you know, what, what you think they should be playing like. All he cares about, his entire belief system is on getting a result. That's all he cares about. He just wants to win. So he doesn't care how it's done. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't care how anybody thinks whether it's pretty to watch or not. That's why it's so aggressive. So yes, I think aesthetically you could say, well, it wasn't necessarily something beautiful to watch from Atlético Madrid, but they got a one nothing result. And at the end of the day, what is it that you remember the most, right? So, so I I'm, I think so. I think he got into Klopp's mind, and and, and he like you know he probably uh, bugged him a little bit how he sat shocked, But Klopp is smart enough to know that in the second leg Liverpool will bring everything that
1: they have let's move to Wednesday's results Spurs nil Leipzig one in London and to be honest here I think Leipzig's going to feel like they should have a bigger advantage leading this game lots of chances I thought they dominated the game especially in the first half this was a Spurs team that I was disappointed by even with all the absences they have
0: yep I agree with you again. It's annoying sometimes for listeners, right? Because me and you always agree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, listen. uh, Obviously, there is something to be said about the fact that Tottenham was missing its two key offensive weapons in Son and Harry Kane. But they still have Lucas Moura. They still have Lamella. They still have Dele Alli. uh, You know, they still have a tremendous midfield that can go forward. Uh, So, there is really no excuse, especially when you play at home. And to me and I tweeted about it pretty much straight after the game. This is actually very simple. You know, this was just a tactical one by the younger, more innovative manager in in Nagelsmann. So, you know, I think I think that the only thing would be that Mourinho should really sing the praises of Hugo Lloris because one nothing again gives enough opportunity for Tottenham to go to Germany and really try and get a result. Because one nothing, I think Leipzig is going to think, like you said, they really should have come up with 3 nothing, or at the very least a second goal um, in order to be, get a, a little bit more of an advantage, uh, you know, when they play in the second leg. So again, I'm, you know, I think that Leipzig has to be worried of the fact that they could get mourinho
1: Yeah, I think they do. At the same time, I, I really feel like this is, in a way, modern football in the year 2020 from Nagelsmann against... Football from more than a decade ago by Jose Mourinho. It it just doesn't feel like, um, to me at least, that that Jose Mourinho, it it feels like he's diminished in a way compared to what he Mm. used to be.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I think that... You know, there is something to be said about the fact that we we know the cards that Mourinho is going to lay on the table. There's nothing new. And now with the new generation of managers that are coming out that are smarter and are thinking of different ways of exploiting an opponent, sometimes, you know... An old draw, an old dog doesn't have new tricks. So you know that that could be said for that. The other thing that I'll say, by the way, is that jokingly enough, Grant, do you think that Tottenham maybe is thinking? Listen, why are we killing ourselves in the Champions League? Let's just save all the reserves to get fifth, because you know we'll get Champions (laughs) League anyway.
1: (laughs) Somebody had a tweet I saw today just saying like, you know, Tottenham is is bailing on Champions League so they can focus on qualifying for Champions League, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I really wouldn't put it past Joseph Meridian. Uh Last
1: game is is actually a really interesting one. I have to admit I didn't get the chance to see it today because uh, I was focusing on the, the Spurs-Leipzig game, but Atalanta 4, Valencia 1. And you know more about Atalanta than I do, but this is turning into an amazing story here, just this low-budget team from Italy, from a, a pretty small city that... It looks like it's on its way to the quarterfinals of UEFA Champions League.
0: I, I honestly don't know how to describe Atalanta better than just to say they are like the mighty ducks of soccer. They just <laughs> they don't they don't care about you. They don't care if you're Juventus. They don't care if you're Real Madrid. And in this case, they don't care if you're a La Liga team. Like Valencia, they they you know. Uh, thankfully, we have a lot of smarter brains out there that focus so much on Serie A. Like our friend Matteo Bonetti, and thanks to him, I've I've like gotten to know a lot more information about them. But my God, they have the same budget as a fifteenth place championship side right now, like Reading. They really have a very small budget. Uh, but not only that, um, they are just so they don't care offensively. <laughs> They they, they they have three at the back. They play with a three, they sort of play with like a three, four, one, two. And all mm-hmm. the, even like their center backs can cause problems. And the best thing that you can say about Atlanta is they're four, one up. So they got this game wrapped up in the first leg. And what does uh, the manager do? What does Gasparini do? He brings on Duvan Zapata, a Colombian striker, because he just wants more goals. Like, that's really the best way to describe Atlanta, And I I love it. I mean, and they're equal opportunists when it comes to scoring. It's not that you're just depending on one person. I mean, I look at today. You had two strikers... um, sorry, one striker and a midfielder scoring. And, and they're just so much fun to watch. I mean, granted, listen, Valencia is not exactly going to be the, the biggest, toughest opponent, with all due respect, out of the, this lot in the Champions League. But fair play to Atalanta, and they're looking good for the quarterfinals.
1: I mean, this Atalanta team is not a fluke. Not only did they get in the top four in Italy last year, not only are they on their way to the quarterfinals in Champions League this year, they're in the top four in Italy again this year. So they are doing it week after week after week
0: yep and I wouldn't be surprised if Gasparini gets the doors or gets a few uh, phone calls this summer
1: (laughs) well that is it for this week's discussion on Champions League results come back to us on Monday we'll go over the weekend we'll do this again midweek next week on Champions League now an interview though with Tarek Panja of the New York Times on Man City's ban from UEFA Our interview guest today is Tarek Panja, global sports reporter for the New York Times. He's based in London. Tarek, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Great to be with you, Bob. Uh,
1: The big news, obviously, these days is UEFA's stunning two-year ban and 30 million euro fine for Manchester City for violating financial fair play rules and not fully cooperating with the investigation. Man City has said they will appeal my first reaction when I heard about this on Friday was surprised that UEFA had the guts to levy this serious a punishment. Were you surprised at all?
2: Uh, I, I was surprised, but I would also caution um, what we talk about when we when we speak about UEFA in this instance, and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, um, the, the The people who actually make the decisions on on financial fair play are are essentially independent of UEFA, these are specialists in their own field, judges and advocates who have their own careers outside of the orbit of, of, of soccer outside of UEFA, so they're independent in that sense. The, the person responsible for making this judgment is a Portuguese judge from the European court, so he, he's used to high-pressure decisions. He's, um, you know, a private figure. I don't think he's given any interviews about this UEFA work, etc. And, um, and yes, they, they looked at the evidence. Uh, I believe very rigorously in this case. It took a very long time, given the dimensions that you described and, and, and what we've been reading about, and came up with this ban. Um, now we're in an interesting area where UEFA, the body, UEFA, the institution, actually comes into play because City, by appealing this have taken it out of ha- out of the hands of this judge, out of the hands of this adjudicatory chamber, and are now dealing directly with UEFA and all the political machinations that that entails.
1: So we shouldn't be giving too much credit to Alexander Seferin, the president of UEFA, yet, because this isn't really his decision
2: at this point. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. This isn't uh, a decision for the UEFA administration. And to be honest with you, they've been at pains... He's been at pains, other senior officials, to say, look, we can't tell you anything about this. We don't know about this. This is independent. So on the one hand, uh, he can't take credit for it, uh, for the decision being, being made. And, um, and then on the other hand, he can't be blamed for anything that may have happened during this investigation.
1: So where do you see this going uh, from here? Because obviously this is tremendously important to Manchester City to avoid having this penalty, or at least this serious of a penalty. And this could have just huge ramifications for the sport.
2: Absolutely. This is hugely significant for, for not just Manchester City, but the, the orbit that, that surrounds them, the, the sort of top of the tree when it comes to European and global soccer, um, and also to the financial fair play project that, that UEFA started about 10 years ago. Um, the thing that is clear from the beginning is Manchester City's almost belligerence towards this process. They haven't believed in it. They they've been very, very aggressive in any of the public statements they've made. They've they've talked about fighting this till the till the end in, in, in a in an in an independent process. I don't know what why they say this process is independent. But in an independent process, they said they have irrefutable evidence that has been ignored. They've been very, very strong. Um, And don't forget, they're backed by a nation state. They're backed by one of the richest countries in the world who are used to getting things their own way. Um, So this, unless there is a kind of an agreement, which is where I suppose if I was going to speculate, is where I would sit between Manchester City and maybe UEFA, to settle out of court, which can happen in these caste cases. You you are going to see, you know, a a, a royal rumble almost to to the death here. And I'm not sure if anybody wants that.
1: What do you think are the chances? Obviously, there's the court of arbitration for sport uh, that could rule on this. But what do you think are the chances this could even go outside of CAS into the court system.
2: Yeah, there is there is um, a, a process, um, and some people, athletes, and institutions have used this, where um, the the Swiss Supreme Court um, comes into play. But but a lot of people get that wrong as well. That that's a court that looks for procedural errors in the CAS process. Not it doesn't relitigate the entire case. Usually it backs. Unless, unless something has gone wrong with the process. So there is that. And then you're talking about other civil courts and other, other arenas. Look, this has been around for 10 years. If Man City had a problem with it, why haven't they done anything before? Um, you also got, it's also been tested with the European Commission. There is a specificity of sport argument for, for, for these sports organisations anyway. That gives them um, some power to, to create Rules and regulations that may be um, that may not work in the world of um, commerce and business, but are suited to sport because of its social importance, etc. So this has been tested, um, and 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 so I, I'm not sure what Man City can do. I think they may try, and they, you know they've said. I mean, one of these leaked emails suggested that the chairman was willing to spend 30 million euros on the best 50 lawyers to sue UEFA um forever and ever you know until, until the end of time to, to get their own way. however, look I'm, I'm not sure there are many jurisdictions that want to take it. Um, this has been around, this has been tested um, you know if, if we weren't talking about a club that was one of the most powerful in the world that was um, that wasn't bankrolled by you know one of the richest human beings in in the world, I, I think it would be more cut and dried. I think it's because of the actors involved that we're saying, oh, you know, there's a great case here for Manchester City. Um, And they've done, I think, um, quite a good job um, from a public relations point of view in, um, I guess, muddying the waters a little bit by talking about the rules of financial fair play, whether they're correct or whether they're not. And, you know, that's an argument, I guess, for another day and an argument they could have had in the past, because... The rules, the rules um, whether you like them or not, um, they could be challenged, they could be lobbied against, um, and you've got to get, you know, um, make friends and influence people along, along the way to, to change those things, and that's perfectly reasonable. However, when you sign up to a competition, like all the other scores of teams who sign up for the Europa League or Champions League every year, they know the rules, and, and you abide by them, and if you don't, you get whacked. And I guess this is what's happened here.
1: I do wonder, though, is it accurate in your opinion to say that until this decision, UEFA had gotten a reputation as being sort of soft on uh, enforcing financial fair play?
2: Uh, I think the, the results are mixed. I think it depends. You know, unfortunately, there's been a lack of consistency that some people might point at. Um, some people say the, the, the smaller the, the club, the less influential the club, the easier it has been to, to, to sort of um, take action against them. There have been two significant cases in recent times. I've written about one in great detail involving Paris Saint-Germain um, that we can sort of get into a bit um, and another one involving AC Milan that, that 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 have question marks around them. The AC Milan one I suppose first, that ended up going to the court of arbitration for sport as well. And before that court was able to make a ruling, the two sides, the administration, this is, this is not this the financial fair play um, investigator or the or the adjudicatory chamber, but the administration of UEFA led by Seferin, um, et cetera, um, struck a deal out of court with AC Milan. Um, and curiously, Milan was fighting to not be banned um, as it was almost in the Champions League places, but the moment it fell into the Europa League, um, it seemed to accept the one-year ban. And, you know, you, you, you're a, you're a big football fan. What would you, you, you... You'd be more than happy not to play in the Europa League, right, if it means you can then be cleared to play in the Champions League in the future. So it was a curious decision, right?
1: Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it's... The, the PSG situation's uh, intriguing as well. I... I there's at least a sense, right, that PSG has a bit more influence than Man City at UEFA because of Nasser Al-Khalifi, the, the president of PSG?
2: Yeah, hugely. And and I think um, that, that can't be discounted here because, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the world of football um, is, is is opaque and, and is, is, is carried out behind the scenes, behind closed doors. Now, Nasser Al-Khalifi is a very interesting figure. Not only is he the president of Paris Saint-Germain, he was... Also, the the most senior figure at B in sports, a broadcaster based in Qatar, that happens to be the biggest customer, bar none, of UEFA. So that's quite a a powerful position to be in. And then UEFA, most people would say this is a conflict of interest, but then UEFA then manages to accept him as one of its um, council members on the UEFA Executive Committee. Um, that is that is um, extremely um, uh, an extremely close relationship. And you could argue that they played the long game and did really well in order to ingratiate themselves with the movers and shakers in in, in European football over the years. That's something Manchester City um, didn't do and only have sort of belatedly um, tried to do, not not with very much success up until now. Um, but the Paris Saint Germain case also um, throws up. Um, uh, some very interesting questions. Um, I, I was privy to some some, some internal documents um, a, a few months ago, um, in, in in 2019, um, and that case was 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 fascinating because UEFA launched it after um, um, other clubs, fans, etc. Questioned how can this team buy the two most expensive players in the world at the same time? Shattering, shattering, absolutely shattering the 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 transfer um, record. Uh, this is Kylian Mbappe and Neymar, oh, That's 400 million dollars for two players. Um, in, in soccer, when you when you buy a player, you don't pay it all up front. It's 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 paid. Uh, transfers are paid over the 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 duration of a of a player's contract. So uh, over for these guys, say they sign four years contract, you divide it by four. But that's still a huge amount of money. And that led people to, again, question um, Paris um, Saint-Germain's bookkeeping and their sponsorship arrangements, which, like Manchester City, seem to be largely tied to their uh, their money-no-object country, Qatar, Mm -hmm. and a peculiar sponsorship with the Qatar Tourism Authority, which I would estimate to be worth more than any other sports sponsorship for any, any club on the planet, um, but it had no visibility. You wouldn't see the Qatar Tourism Authority branded on the shirt, you wouldn't see it on boards, you wouldn't see it on TV, and you would, when you go to Qatar, you don't even see it. So what, what is this thing? And it turned out this was a payment from Qatar, the state, to PSG, um, and it was, you put our country on the map by being owned by us, let us give you all this money as a thank you, essentially. It made very little sense. This, this investigation goes on for about six months to a year. Um, the investigators, the majority of them, seem to um, be of the view that this is, you know, this is an outrage. These numbers don't add up. Um, so they invited Octagon, a marketing company, to, to carry out an analysis of the sponsorship. And they asked Paris Saint-Germain to pick a company themselves, which was Nielsen. Paid for by 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 um, by PSG. Now uh, the the results are in. Octagon find that this sponsorship with with Qatar Tourism Authority was worth next to nothing uh, because it didn't make any sense. Meanwhile, Nielsen, which uh, was paid for by PSG, came up with this um, huge figure and said it was totally fine. Um, the the judge of the investigatory chamber for financial fair play, which is Yves Leterme, the former Belgian prime minister, he decided, oh look, let's just go with the Nielsen figures. There's nothing to answer here. Let's let's throw the case out. The the judge, the the, the Portuguese guy I mentioned here uh, in the Man City case, he sees this report and he's furious. He says, look, I've looked at these details. There's material errors and everything that's happened. You take it back and you 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 look at this again and then and then you tell me there's no case to answer. Um, PSG then took this case to the court of arbitration for sport and saying, hang on a minute, the judge procedurally has um, made a mistake. It shouldn't be um, going back to the investigators. We should be cleared. UEFA, instead of backing their judge, appeared to back PSG and say, yeah, yeah, you're right. There's probably a procedural error here and the case is dismissed, and PSG are in the clear. I mean, if you're a Man City fan, you're probably going to be furious. Hang on a minute, this is double standards. And, you know, there are questions that that should be asked about this.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the part of the podcast where I I remember that a portion of our listeners probably would just like a a description, a definition of what financial fair play is and what it seeks to do. Is there a quick way to get into that?
2: Yeah, there is, in, in the simplest terms, without getting into all the weeds, Clubs are told to um, spend within their means, i.e. don't spend more than what you earn within a certain very tiny limit, okay? Mm-hmm. So that makes your revenues extremely important because the more you earn, the more you can spend on talent. And the best way to increase increase that revenue um, that is really through these sponsorship arrangements because broadcast deals um tend to be shared among other teams in the league or other teams in the competition. So your differentiator often is your commercial um income. So if you can just inject a few hundred million into that department, you've got you've got an advantage over your rivals when it comes to buying and paying soccer players. And the best determinant of success is salary. So you pay more, you tend to win more. Yeah,
1: appreciate that. I mean like is it right also to say that there has been concern about financial fair play rules in the sense that it sort of reinforces the caste system that has always been there?
2: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that that has been the case from, from, from day dot, but you have to remember when it started, um, the losses in European football, I remember when Michel Platini, the former US president, um, announced it and we were, we were all there and he was, saying, look, this is a reaction to clubs going bankrupt, to clubs overspending. There was a crisis in European football around around the time of the global financial crisis where um, debt levels were unsustainable and there was a risk to the financial health of of the whole system. So that was one of the reasons. If you you impose these strict licensing rules, we might cut the, the scale of the losses. And to that extent, it worked. And the other thing was these new nation-states were coming into, into, into the sport, and Michel Platini described it, and, and also oligarchs as well, um, Russians and others, um, uh, described it as financial doping. So this was um, an effort to kind of reduce the um, kind of impact of these, um, um, you know, money, no object characters, and kind of, who would be able to change the face of the game by just pouring money into their particular team. The, the, the net effect, though, as you've mentioned, was that a group of um, established teams were able to solidify their position at the top table without um, the risk of um, um, external competitors. Um, that said, Man City haven't been unduly affected by FFP. Look, they've, they've, they've won the Premier League with, with record um, points totals. They've bought some of the best players in the world. They, um, they are now at the top table themselves. So And they signed up to FFP. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have to be careful what we talk about here. If the drawbridge has been pulled up, how are Manchester City there? Uh, you know, you, you, you could argue. Equally, Manchester City in 2014, they went through a financial fair play process, and they uh, were found to have breached the the regulations then. And with UEFA, they uh, agreed a settlement agreement, which wasn't um, a ban from European competitions, but um, a, a fine, which is like you know, a mosquito hitting a windshield when you're talking about the richest people in the world. Um, and also a um, reduction in squad size, etc. But all to say, Man City cooperated with that with that procedure. They they dealt with the club financial control board, which they now describe as being biased and prejudiced. Now, if if they had a problem, if they if they think this this group is not independent and is biased, why did they not complain in 2014? Now, um, a lawyer or a judge may ask that same question when it goes to Cass. You're bringing these new arguments to us when you were fully um, willing to abide by them uh, five, six years ago.
1: Interesting stuff. Uh, just in terms of timeline, how, how quickly do you see uh, Man City's appeal being dealt with in getting an answer on that? Yeah, you know,
2: w- w- this is something that we're, we're willing to waiting to waiting to see. But um, the qualification for next season's European competitions begins in July um so it has to be done um, before that Manchester city um if it's not that man city could could um kind of argue for a stay for the decision to be stayed and they they, they could play in next seasons arguably until until um, um a decision has been rendered that said i don't believe that is going to happen I think one way or the other we're going to get um uh, a, a resolution at least in terms of who's playing in this in this tournament um but before the start
1: of next season i wanted to ask you about this fascinating portuguese hacker who and who's had a connection to this man city case uh football leaks is sort of the generic term for for what he revealed but he's had influence on several things he have written about his influence on uh the richest woman in africa from angola um what kind of what is Football Leaks and and who is this guy, and what's he done?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's a fascinating story actually, and it dates back to around September twenty fifteen. Um, this is when these contracts, player contracts, mysteriously appeared under under uh, um this website um, called Football Leaks. Nobody knew who this person was. Um. And for months, player contracts that you know you never see. Unlike US sport, um, soccer soccer player contracts, their their salaries and even their transfer fees are, are usually cloaked in secrecy. You know, very rarely, unless the club is actually a um, listed um, on a stock exchange or something like that, you, you 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 really don't know exactly how much. You see a lot of numbers in the newspapers, but they are um, either you know um, guesstimates or they they're not able to be directly sourced to either party so this suddenly lifted the veil on the billions being moved around in, in the world of um, international soccer um, that the salaries being paid the, the the actors involved you know there was all sorts of acts as well that the fans probably don't know about people you know looking to ar- arbitrage in this world you know investors etc trying to make profits from the world of football and he he, he he did that and it looked it was a very murky picture if you've taken together all these documents were very murky. And that that, that lasted for about um, two or three months, and he suddenly disappeared. Mm. Um, and then, or the information suddenly disappeared. And then um, Der Spiegel, the German news magazine, announced that it was going to cooperate with this person. It described uh, or called John under a pseudonym. And then over the next year or so, Der Spiegel... And, and a group of European newspapers started publishing these revelations about the world of soccer that went beyond uh, these player trades. They were, you know, they, they, they led to tax evasion investigations against players, clubs and agents. There was even this, this, this detail that Cristiano Ronaldo, um, faced a, um, a, a rape investigation in Los Angeles and, and that was reopened. And then, um, Vegas,
1: was right?
2: They, yeah. Within, in Las Vegas. So yeah, yeah with, um and that is now closed and there's, um you know Ronaldo's been cleared of any wrongdoing up up until now. But but it did shine a light on, on, on these on these operations. And one of the things was Manchester City, how this club was run and how I guess um the this kind of the, the idea that Abu Dhabi was secretly funding Man City was something that a lot of people speculated about because all the sponsors seemed to come there, from there, almost the majority of them, just like um, Paris Saint-Germain. And, and it was able to suddenly grow so fast beyond its fan base, beyond what it's a regular commercial um, model would suggest for a club of that type. Uh, but you know, no, no one, there was no proof of any of this. So it was you know just gossip in the pub or you know, having a coffee with your friend. Um, you, you couldn't write it. But then suddenly these internal emails came and uh, came to be published by this Spiegel, etc. And, and yeah, there you go. It was right there. Um, and this is what UEFA believe as well. So, you know, they don't, we c- UEFA don't think it's alleged anything because they said you're guilty. So I think we might, as far as UEFA are concerned, be able to drop the, the word allegations now and say UEFA found Man City uh, guilty of, of breaching these regulations, essentially cheating a process. And that, that's thanks to um, the details. From, from this Portuguese hacker, who we can now name as Rui Pinto, a uh, young 31-year-old boy with spiky hair, <laughs> uh, with no formal computer training, he, he just he just um, was able to, to, to sort of crack into the, the, the world of football and, and, and get access to all this information, and then you mentioned it just now and beyond that, um, information about other um, um, Wrongdo- other wrongdoing, for example, the daughter of the president of uh, ex-president of Angola, you know, potentially embezzling billions of dollars, and that was through his his work. You know, he burrowed into computer systems of law firms and 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 accountants, etc., and, and found this out. Now, 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 you and I could ask: Is this correct? You know, is this is this right? Is this the way um, information should come out? And I I, I would argue, you know, I, I'm not sure this is correct. But, you know, if we all started hacking each other, is that the way we want the world to be? But this is what's happened. This information is public. So should we not take action? I I would then disagree with that thing. You know, we we, we, we can't just close our eyes to this stuff. It's out there. and It it needs to be investigated.
1: And what is up with Rui Pinto now? Is he still uh, in the process of being uh, tried and, and in the system?
2: Rui Pinto is currently a guest of the Portuguese government in a in a jail cell in in Lisbon. He he was um, extradited there last year from from Hungary from Budapest, where he was based, and he is facing almost a hundred charges related to hacking uh, or, or illegally obtaining information related to the Portuguese Football Federation, the club Sporting Clube de Portugal, that some people know as Sporting Lisbon and a player investment company called Doyen Sports. So none of these other other cases linked to Man City or UEFA or FIFA or any other leaks related to to, to any other entities are linked to this. This is almost 100 um, um, charges linked to to this hack and also to um, uh, law firms um, and the attorney general's office in Portugal.
1: We're winding down here with Tarek Panja of the New York Times. I, I wanted to finish just by asking you about your own career, because uh, I find it really interesting. You're with the New York Times now, um, but you, I'd be curious to hear more about how you got to the New York Times. I know you were living in Brazil at one point. What's your story?
2: Oh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story of um, not being sure whether I wanted to do news or sports. I <laughs> ended up doing both at the same time, I guess. I... Um, I, I started as a sports reporter quite, quite, at quite a young age with Eurosport in Paris when I was um, uh, about 19, 20, um, and then finished college, and then was still very confused as to what, what I was going to do, worked for uh, the local newspaper in Manchester, and then joined the Associated Press, which was for me um, you know, a great, a great stepping stone, a great opportunity, fantastic organisation. Work with, with with some great colleagues um, and and sort of entered the U.S. ecosystem as it were. Um, and I was a, a, a news reporter there. Spent most of the time in in, in the U.K. Um, briefly sent was sent to Pakistan on assignment as well. Uh, I found that just just absolutely fascinating. And then this opportunity came to join um, Bloomberg in, in 2008, which in in the U.K. and that they, they were like you know, how would you do this job? And I, I thought, look, everyone and his dad at the moment in sports journalism writes about what's happening on the field. Very few people write about what's happening off the field. And we're a financial company or a financial news organization. Why don't we get into the numbers? And, 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 and that's, that's what what I did for, for a number of years there. Um, and then we had this uh, focus on South America. All of a sudden, the first ever Olympic Games in, 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 in South America, and then before that, um, the World Cup in, in perhaps one of the, the country that admires the World Cup the most and thinks of itself almost um, its its postcard to the world is through its its success at the World Cup. I thought what 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 a fantastic opportunity to try and report in a in a new environment for a few years. Covering a story that there will be um, global interest in. So I based myself in Rio de Janeiro and, 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 and reported um, um, about the build up to those events. Um, and unfortunately, there, there was that took me into an arena that involved uncovering and reporting on a number of corruption scandals in, in Latin America and Brazil in particular, I think, to those events. Um, and 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 you know, and then FIFA carried on, you know, for the ten years before that was was reporting on FIFA and the institutions. Um, and then we had the earthquake of 2015, when uh, senior FIFA officials were woken from their beds and and handcuffed and, and arrested, and um, you know the, the the whole sport was shaken then. And I had a kind of front row seat to that stuff. Um, and the, the, the times around 2016, 2017, um, seemed to have an appetite for this type of journalism, for this type of story and I guess I was just lucky to be at the right place at the right time um, in terms of what they wanted to do and it seems to be so far a really good fit that they have been exemplary employers um, and you know, allowing me to report on the stories I, I want to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're clearly, along with Rory Smith and a couple other people, part of an expanded time strategy to cover sports much more internationally, um, and that seems to be going quite well in terms of the Times' digital strategy. Um, is it? Do you ever get any sort of response that's different from the people you cover to being with an American outlet than you did when you were with uh, not necessarily an American outlet?
2: just just this but yeah look there's there's two there's two ways of looking at it there's um, um from from a commercial point of view um, the 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 business card is is obviously quite significant and there are people who want to place them, themselves um, you know into the homes of Americans be it soccer clubs or companies etc it's a lot they're, they're, they're a lot more um, eager to to to, to want to position themselves in the States, and I guess we're a vehicle for, for, for that. But on the other hand, they also do, th- those who are doing wrong, their stakes are also so much higher for them in terms of what I cover, that um, they are often extremely sensitive to the stories I write because the, the resonance is so much bigger, right? Um, and that, 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 that has been interesting as well. Um, you know, you have, one, a business case. For them, um, where they, they hope to crack the American market, and I suppose the New York Times, so yourselves at Sports Illustrated, you know, certain other um, media companies, they 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 they're probably looking to for, for coverage in them that they didn't have in the past. Uh, but there's a double-edged sword to that because we're going to be looking at them and scrutinising them a lot closer. And and soccer, um, the industry, unfortunately, is um, has been for many years a, a Kind of um, a murky industry, where 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 things aren't always as transparent. The interest globally in the sport is huge, and people want to know how their game is being run.
1: He is Tarek Panja. He is a reporter for the New York Times. You can find him on Twitter at t a r i q p a n j a. Tarek, thanks so much for joining the show.
2: Thanks, Grant. Enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Tarek Panja as well as producer Harry Swartout and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. See you next time.